This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Majority Report, The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, All In With Chris Hayes, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Media Matters Minute. And to be fair to conservatives, not nearly all of them are as bad as what I'm about to play, but also to be fair, they are the ones who keep electing these people. You know, I know this is going to come as some surprise to you, or maybe it won't, but apparently there's still hearings going on about the IRS scandal, which um, involved, and, and frankly, to the extent that this is a scandal, it's only because I think of the reaction by the administration. You know the story. 501c4s exploded after the Citizens United ruling because it allowed donors a way of essentially laundering their money without, uh, while still being anonymous into organizations that should have a primary focus on social welfare and not electioneering. And of course, because this was never that big of a problem, there was really no um, uh, IRS mechanism in which to determine how do you define that? And so these offices were swamped with new 501c4 requests, which basically say uh, you get a tax-exempt status. The organization does. And it allows anonymous donors. And so as a way in which to determine whether or not a, a group may or may not be more engaged in electioneering than they should be, they used words like Tea Party or liberal <laughs> Uh, or whatever. And they then pulled these, these because they get so many applications, they couldn't scrutinize each one. They pulled these, scrutinized them, gave them a higher level of scrutiny to see if these opt-in people were deserving of this special status. They rejected none, at least of the conservative ones. They weren't targeting anybody. They were just using a shortcut an inartful one, maybe, but maybe not, of determining which ones they were going to screen. And this is still ongoing. And um, apparently uh, Lois Lerner, the um, former head of that uh, division of IRS, went up there, pled the fifth today, because she's apparently terrified to speak in public. Oh, I think that, that really is why. She's the just anti, a prudent course of action at this point. The anti, you know, the, this, this, this witch hunt that's on there. And God knows how many, um, she probably had to go into witness protection at this point. I'm not kidding with all these uh, rabid white right-wingers. So Daryl Issa hears that and then apparently decides that he's going to end the hearing, not allow um, any type of response by, who's this, uh, by, uh, by the number two on the committee. Um, who is it? Uh, it's uh, Congressman Elijah uh, Cummings. Elijah Cummings. The all ranking right. Democrat. And here is the hearing. You're... Elijah Cummings is off mic at one point because Daryl Issa cut his mic. He's saying, I have questions. Right. I want to say something in the hearing, too. And Daryl Issa literally is standing up over him saying, no, we're done. And, and, and literally walking out of the room. Here it is. On the advice of my counsel, I respectfully exercise my Fifth Amendment right and decline to answer that question. Ladies and gentlemen, seeking 
the truth is the obligation of this committee. I can see no point in going further. I have no expectation that Ms. Lerner will cooperate with this committee, and therefore we Chairman, 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 I have a statement. I have a procedural question, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, I have a procedural question. Mr. Chairman, you cannot run a committee like this. You just cannot do this. This is, we're better than that as a country. We're better than that as a committee. I have asked for a few minutes to ask. Darrell Ice is getting up and leaving at this moment. Yep. What are we hiding? What's the big deal? May I ask my question? May you I state my statement? You're, you're all free to leave. We've adjourned, but the gentleman may ask his question. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, I have one procedural question, and it goes to trying to help you get the information, by the way, that you just asked. What is your question? Let, I'm, I'm going, no, let me say what I have to say. I've listened to you for the last 15 or 20 minutes. Let me say what I have to say. Chairman, I have one procedural Ms. question. Ms. Lerner, you're, you're, you're released. You may. But first, I would like to use my time to make some brief points. For the past year, the central Republican accusation in this investigation. We're adjourned. Close it down. You can't hear him because he cut his mic. Thank you. This was a comedy of the president's political enemies effectively and lying about it during the election year in the fall. He continued this theme on Sunday, but I, if you will sit down and allow me to ask the question, I am a member of the Congress of the United States of America. I am tired of this. Well. We have, we have members over here, each who you represent 700,000 people. You cannot just have a one-sided investigation. There is absolutely something wrong with that, and this is absolutely un-American. Here, here. We had a hearing. It was adjourned. I gave you an opportunity to ask a question. You had some questions. I do have a question. I gave you an opportunity. Chairman, what are you hiding? He's taking the fifth, Elijah. <laughs> there you go. Did you hear what that other congressman yeah, he said? said? Uh, he's taking the fifth, Elijah, speaking of. And the, the bottom line is, is that uh, what Cummings is saying here is that you've been pushing this line that somehow there was collusion with the White House. Uh, as if the White House was saying, like, target these, um, you know, dozen Tea Party groups in Cincinnati. Because that's really going to help us. It's a joke. It's a real joke. Let's get this. And we'll, we'll include and we that video. Know. We'll include that video in the YouTube clip. So if you want to watch yeah. it, we'll have another it up. point off. And mic. I, let me just say this: this is this whole IRS thing is clearly just a big distraction from Benghazi. <laughs> just clearly a big distraction. I want to know. Um, I want to know if Daryl Issa. Is working in collusion with the White House to distract people from Benghazi. That's what I want to know. Well, all good right-wing pundits and bloggers should know Daryl Issa is of Middle Eastern descent. So I'm just putting it out there.
do, do you guys not follow do, do you guys not follow right wing Twitter and right wing internet? The most important issues of our time are Benghazi, IRS, Fast and Furious. If you like your health insurance, you could keep your health insurance. Those four things, that's all they repeat. Right. It's everything they say over and over again. Do you know well, here's the irony. Do you know what Benghazi uh, it means in Aramaic? Ukraine? In Aramaic. Aramaic? Yes. <laughs> it means if you like your insurance, you can keep it. <laughs> Some Scott Walker campaign racist emails have leaked. There's a 2010 email exchange between two employees of Wisconsin Republican Governor Scott Walker, who uh, and and the uh, then the Milwaukee County Executive, and they include a racist, homophobic, anti-Semitic chain message laying out a so-called nightmare scenario where somebody would wake up black. Jewish, disabled, and gay with a Mexican boyfriend. The email reads, In the nightmare, I'm a homosexual, and on top of that, with a Mexican boyfriend. Oh my God, black, Jewish, disabled, gay, with a Mexican boyfriend, drug addict, and HIV positive. Say it isn't so, I can handle being a black, disabled, one-armed, drug-addicted, Jewish homosexual on a pacemaker who's HIV-positive, bald, orphaned, unemployed, lives in a slum, and has a Mexican boyfriend. But please, oh dear God, please don't tell me I'm a Democrat. Wow, really hilarious stuff, hilarious chain message. The correspondence was from Thomas Nardelli, who was then Scott Walker's chief of staff, to his deputy Kelly Rindfleisch, who was revealed, uh, these, these messages were revealed by Demo Democratic Research Group American Bridge 21st Century on Wednesday after a court of appeals in Wisconsin released 27,000 pages of emails and documents. And this is part of that John Doe investigation, which is, according to several sources, all about Scott Walker campaign uh, finance issues and related possible campaign violations. And in addition to Rindfleisch, the email was sent to an undisclosed recipient. Your guess as to who that might be. There's also a different 2010 email exchange which was released. This one was between Scott Walker himself and Nardelli. And that one talks about possibly firing a doctor at the Milwaukee County Behavioral Health Division after officials learned that she formerly worked as a thong model. And Nardelli wrote to Walker, it isn't pornographic, but it is quite suggestive. And Scott Walker wrote back, get rid of the doctor as soon as possible. Lewis, I am shocked, truly shocked, that there could be open and blatant racism, sexism, and homophobia in a Republican state campaign. I just can't believe it. Mm. See, I can, David. This is about <laughs> as surprising as the sun coming up today. 
uh, I, I mean, I would have guessed that this was happening even without having confirmation of it. Lewis, maybe it's actually us progressives who are racist because we see racism in this, and that's actually our problem. Okay, what what do you think is the best thing, the thing about the show that is best and most appealing to to somebody who listens or watches? Because we cover everything and we do it well. <laughs> Why do you think people watch the show? I think that it's a completely different angle. I don't think it's about being expansive or up to date. I think it's 99% of media that's out there is giving one story, it's giving a particular point of view, and it's also not covering certain stories. So I don't know that it's about being up-to-date or expansive. I think it's, it's a well, non- Well, that's what I said. We cover everything. Well, we don't cover everything, Lewis. How could we cover everything? We cover eight to ten stories. Everything important, pretty much. Well, if that doesn't make you curious, I don't know what will. Check out The David Pakman Show at davidpakman.com. So Ted Nugent recently, of course, has been saying ridiculous things, and uh, nonetheless, uh, the person running for Texas uh, governor uh, for the Republicans is Greg Abbott, and he's campaigning all across the state with Ted Nugent anyway. Now, he says he's uh, got a great track record of protecting women against sexual predators, but Ted Nugent uh, has admitted to, you know, having relationships with underage girls, and uh, so that's kind of questionable. And he's also called the president subhuman mongrel. These are really outrageous things to say. And the guy who's going to regulate on this in an unprecedented fashion, Wolf Blitzer. Wolf, take it away. I mean, do they know the history of that phrase, subhuman mongrel? Uh, That's what the Nazis called Jews uh, leading up and during World War II to, to justify the genocide of the Jewish community. They called the Jews untermensch or subhuman mongrels if you read some of the literature that the nazis put out there's a long history there of that specific phrase that he used involving the president of the united states someone who has studied the holocaust studied world war ii i went back and we checked uh, in der Sturmer and and during world war ii uh, julius streicher the nazi this is what he would Strike. say about the right. jews and justifying the genocide of the jewish people the mongrel he has hereditary tendencies from aryans asiatics negroes and from the Mongolians. Evil always preponderates in the case of a mongrel. So that, that's the history of that phrase. And A, I wonder if, if Ted Nugent himself knows that history, the use of that phrase. But B, the Republicans in Texas who are welcoming him on the campaign trail and say, yeah, you know what, he's using some outspoken language. That's Ted Nugent. Do they know what this means? All right, look at Wolf Blitzer go to work on my homes, who's definitely not my homes. Now, Wolf Blitzer, we often criticize for being a robotic anchor who doesn't show much emotion there. But I love the passion that he showed there. Credit where credit is due. And he's absolutely right. And that quote that he read from the Nazi propagandists, well, that was bone chilling. So obviously, Ted Nugent uh, being corrected on the history here and, you know, what he's referring to being so heinous is going to apologize, right? Of course not. Instead, he tweets, CNN, Joseph Goebbels, Saul Alinsky, propaganda ministry mongrels. I guess that's tripling down. It also doesn't make much sense. 
So, hey, they said you're using words of the Nazi propaganda. So he says, oh, yeah? Goebbels! Plus Solinsky, who has nothing to do with this, but I don't know, that's like a code word that we use. Solinsky! Obama, CNN! Obamacare! <laughs> what are you talking about? Propaganda industry mongrels. And now he's calling CNN mongrels. Okay, if I cared to help him, I would say don't do that. That doesn't do you any favors. And this guy is now so toxic uh, that I think even the Republicans are going to have to dump him, right? Uh, now, he can't leave terrible enough alone, of course, so he had to send out another tweet. And so here's what he tweeted. I'm not kidding. Literally, he said, Wolf Blitzer's a journalist, and I'm a gay pirate from Cuba. What's with this guy and all the gay talk? And like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm gay, yeah. <laughs> In fact, you remember this, of course, we played it the other day. There's no way I'm not going to play it again. This was in a random interview talking about, he was trying to make the case for what a good guy he is. Watch this. I'm an extremely loving, passionate man, and people who investigate me honestly, without the baggage of political correctness, ascertain the conclusion that I'm a damn nice guy, and if you can find a screening process more powerful than that, I'll f Or f How's that sound? <laughs> if you didn't see that the first time we played it, uh, he tells the reporter that I'll suck your dick. I got it, dude. You're a gay pirate from Cuba. I got it. I got it loud and clear. Man, this guy is a class A weirdo. And this is what the Republicans are so proud to campaign with? They're nuts. So CNN uh, sent correspondent uh, down there to ask Greg Abbott, hey, what are you doing? Why are you campaigning with this guy? Let's see how that goes. Mr. Abbott, why, do you, why did you think it was a good idea to campaign with Ted Nugent? You know, it's, it's funny how the reactive uh, the Davis campaign is to this. It shows that uh, he's driven a wedge and exposed uh, the fraud uh, that they've displayed on Second Amendment-based issues. And so Ted Nugent was a way to expose Wendy Davis for her flip-flopping on gun-related issues. But this is, te this is Texas. But this is Texas. Finding someone who is pro-guns is not that hard. Why does it have to be Ted Nugent? What's your question? I was gonna, that I was, was the I question. I saw your, your new campaign about Wendy yeah, apparently they didn't like that question. And by the way, there was CNN's Ed Lavender with a perfectly good question. There's no shortage of pro-gun guys in uh, Texas. Why does it have to be Ted Nugent? And the reality is, it's because uh, Republicans are star-struck. <laughs> Ted Nugent is the saddest star in the world, right? It's more like a black hole. It's imploded in itself. <laughs> but the Republicans are like, oh my God, he's a quasi-celebrity. He kind of likes us. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> All right, if you're into gay pirates from Cuba, God bless you, okay? But the reality is, they don't care how toxic he is. They just think, uh, we love him because we get press attention. But I'm not sure you're going to like this kind of press attention. By the way, uh, Lavender wound up having a confrontation with his uh, Abbott's press person next. Watch. Mr. Abbott, you could have, Mr. Abbott, you could have, you could have, you could have found a lot of people to talk about gun rights. You could have found a lot of people to talk about gun rights, Mr. Abbott. Mr. Abbott, you could have, you could have found a lot of people to talk about gun rights. That's not a press conference. You know that's not a press conference. One question is not a press conference. That's not a press conference. No, come on, nothing. We told you. We said specifically what we wanted to talk about. And now you're blocking. And you asked the question. Everybody asked the question. That's not a press conference, and you know full well you're. 
Wow. I, first, I like the CNN's aggressive and regulating, right? And uh, they're holding some politician accountable. That's terrific. And of course, when you do that, oh, 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 oh take it easy, big guy. Take it easy, okay? Uh, and they didn't even ask about Ted Nugent crapping his pants to get out of Vietnam. Have I mentioned that one before? If you're a corporation or think tank and you want to get a piece of legislation signed into law, you're going to have a tough time on Capitol Hill where the two parties split power and gridlock has become routine. The story is very different at the state level. As Republican Ed Gillespie recently told the New York Times, people who want to see policies enacted and see things tried are moving their activity to the states and away from Washington. There's a sense you can get things done. And the best, purest way for those on the right to get things done, to move legislation from a computer screen into the hands of sympathetic lawmakers and eventually get it passed into law, is through an organization called the American Legislative Exchange Council. Tonight, we go all in on ALEC. ALEC has forged a unique partnership between state legislators and leaders from the corporate and business community. This partnership offers businessmen the extraordinary opportunity to apply their talents to solve our nation's problems and build on our opportunities. For more than 30 years, a private tax-exempt organization called the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC, has brought state lawmakers, conservative think tanks, and corporate interests together to write model legislation to be introduced and passed in state houses across the country. The group was co-founded by conservative activist Paul Wyrick. I don't want everybody to vote. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Alec counts nearly 2,000 state lawmakers as members, nearly all of them Republicans, along with hundreds of corporate and private interests, among them AT&T, ExxonMobil, Pfizer, and Comcast, the parent company of MSNBC. I've been privileged to work with Alec in the federal government, I've been privileged to work with Alec when I was back in Texas at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, leading the Tenth Amendment Center, and I am proud to stand with Alec today. Alec's working groups have churned out hundreds of pieces of model legislation that reflect a vision of government working hand-in-hand -hand with business. They've crafted bills rolling back environmental laws, protecting corporate tax breaks, and weakening gun control. Legislation that has proven pretty easy to pass in the 23 states that are completely controlled by Republicans. Alec helped craft SB 1070, Arizona's draconian anti-immigration law. It orchestrated the introduction of voter ID laws across the country that have made it harder to vote. It even worked with the NRA to bring Florida's controversial Stand Your Ground law to more than a dozen other states. Outrage over Stand Your Ground ignited a campaign which successfully pressured Coca-Cola, Amazon, Kraft, Walmart, and many other companies to cut ties with Alec. But the group has since refocused its attention on economic issues, and it remains enormously powerful. Just last month, 
Alec held a policy summit in Washington, attended by Paul Ryan, Ron Johnson, and Ted Cruz, who had this message for the faithful. My advice to Alec is very, very simple. Stand your ground. Alec would not let members of the media into task force meetings to watch lawmakers and business interests craft their model legislation. But All In has obtained records of those meetings and earlier Alec gatherings that provide a window into how the organization operates and why it's been so effective. Some of what we reviewed has already been put online by Alec, which posted much of its model legislation last year after leaks and outside pressure. Last year, for example, Alec considered a model bill that would allow state legislatures to place candidates directly on the ballot, next to the candidates nominated by the parties, in order to chip away at the direct election of senators enshrined in the 17th Amendment. Another piece of model legislation, the Civil Rights Act, eliminates affirmative action programs, while the Climate Accountability Act requires regular state audits that can be used to defund efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But ALEC is about more than just model bills. They also take actions that look an awful lot like lobbying. Last year, as the New York Times detailed, an ALEC lawmaker in Ohio wrote to a colleague to relay ALEC's concerns about a bill that would make it easier to recover money from businesses that defraud the state. The bill was reworked to address ALEC's concerns. Unreleased documents reviewed by All In paint a portrait of an organization in which industry and government are in near complete harmony one that enshrines that relationship by requiring that its task forces are chaired by at least one representative from the business community and one from government. Here's Michael Watley of the Consumer Energy Alliance, an industry group, telling lawmakers to, quote, put an op-ed in any paper in your district talking about the positive values of the Keystone XL Pipeline, a controversial project that would transport crude oil south from Canada. The idea was to create a groundswell of support for Keystone XL at the local level that appeared to be organic. Watley had a supportive audience. Documents show Representative Ken Ivory of Utah asking him just how patient Canada will be as America struggles to come to understand that, quote, energy is essential to life. It's just one small exchange, but it reflects the bigger picture that emerges in these documents. The key to Alex's success, its killer app, is that it makes the lives of harried state lawmakers much, much easier. They don't have to wonder what their corporate donors want. Industry representatives are happy to tell them. They don't have to worry about drafting carefully worded legislation that will satisfy their base. Alec is happy to hand it over. All lawmakers have to do is fill in the blanks. And if they aren't sure how to vote on some obscure issue, they can simply check with Alec. The private sector uh, engagement and partnership uh, in Alec is, is really what I think makes it uh, the organization that it is. It's a great deal for conservative lawmakers who don't want to get bogged down in the drudgery and hard work of governing. But it's a terrible deal for the rest of us. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen, so if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions 
restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. In the latest nation that I have from Jan uh, February 10th, which you may know, um, there is a book review of the story of Death Foretold, the coup against Salvador Allende, September 11th, 1973. And there was a couple things in this that the, um, uh, the author, Oscar Guardiola Rivera, who wrote it, talks about, about the mindset that that precipitated the coup with the you know the CIA. That's right. And Kissinger's Kissinger, Henry Kissinger's yeah. um, and with help from uh, religious zealots in in Chile and in other in Brazil. But he talks about um, that the the Pinochet uh, election and I mean the P Pinochet dictatorship after Allende's election. Um, in conjunction with U.S., you know, the conservatism of the U.S. Or the Milton Friedman, I think, actually went down there, if I remember correctly. Uh, yep. That some people call neoliberalism, but I, I do not. Uh, produce the norms that govern the world today, and it says that it's a philosophical idea with combined with historical events. And it says that um, there's an assumption by the powerful that creative working class intellectuals do not exist. Then that's not a thing. That when they vote for things that they don't like or what this man was saying, you're worth what you're worth. He's assuming there's no such thing as a creative poor person or an intellectual poor person. He probably thinks... There's no value to all, them except yes. for the fact that they could get a $2 job. Right. Period. And, and he said, uh, so they're saying that they have no belief that uh, creative working class intellectuals exist even though they divide the world into two sorts of people. Um themselves and the rest, and that justifies economic inequality by pointing to the alleged infantile barbarism of the powerless. And then um, it, it, it says, uh, and hence exploitable, as Henry Kissinger's ideas about people were. And then he even is quoted as saying, history never has and never will occur in the South, meaning the South Americas. Saying that, that That's how little I think of these people. So I can create and, and move like a chess board because they, they won't make history. Right. By know? history, they're not talking about... Right, exactly. It's not, they're not talking about time proceeding, just that nothing that will happen down there will have any influence on the future of the world and right. so that it will not be recalled in any, any real way. I mean, it's sort of the, the um, I guess, the, the, the mirror or the... Uh, image of uh, Howard Zinn's notion of people's history, that mm -hmm. uh, the idea that actually, you know, human beings actually matter, uh, mm -hmm. even if they're not king. And right. uh, th I mean, the, the, the libertarian philosophy essentially is um, survival of the richest. I guess is really well, what it comes down to. It doesn't matter how you get there. It's arrogant. And there is even people who are victimized by the very system they're supporting, which is uh, the nature of vote republicanism is uh, the cynics and the suckers. You know what I mean? They're constantly voting against their own interests, but be that as it may. It's a, it is an arrogance that's justified. And you were talking about it happens in a vacuum. It has to. It has to. And nothing good happens in a vacuum, right? Aerospace. I mean, uh, vacuums. Mining, your spanks. Vacuums, there, there's vacuums good. are good. 
But <laughs> vacuums are good, but yes. a vacuum. Right, if you don't want to be inside one. But you have to be in denial, right? You have to. It's the same with any cult or any religious orthodoxy or any orthodoxy of any kind, economic, social, religious, what have you. You must deny externalities. Definitely. You must deny uh, empathy uh, in, a, in a way and, and have uh, such a, a sense of short-sightedness that always serves your purposes. And you can't... Uh, you can't you can't have challenges to it, and then th th which also there's a great article in Rolling Stone about I IHOP, the International House of Prayer, which is a real thing. It's one of the largest Christian movements happening, the New Apostolic Reformation movement, and it's actually called the International House of Prayer. Uh, this thing, <laughs> but um, and they're very anti-gay, and and they also uh, have a idea of ex exclusionary politics that they are somehow better. These these. These types of Christians are somehow better, and of course, there's tons of closeted guys uh, oh, in, in it, and um, all, all kinds of stuff. All of what you just uh, reminded me. Yesterday on the program, we had Austin Ruse from CFAM. What was that? The Catholic Family Human Catholic Families and Human Rights Institute. Something to that Something effect. Like, I'll double check. And, now that's a frightening name, but he was he a good guy? But well, they, no. He wasn't a good Catholic. Because uh, when I hear families or values or heritage or tradition or Americans uh, in the title of anything, I know that if I it was the Catholic, the uh, it was right. not Bingo. Institute, that Bingo. might be a good thing. There we go. Woo! Um, Austin, Austin, um, you know, has uh, um, uh, was we had done a video about. Uh, a piece he had done on radio about the horrors of uh, DVRing uh, a Food Channel show called Chopped. Chopped Watching it right. back. Oh, it's with brutal on Chopped. It, well, is, it is cut through. I mean, have you seen some of those dishes? <laughs> Sloppy. <laughs> Sloppy. And then they try and, and say, I'm so sorry, but my, my wife is dying of. They always do that, like when they're about to get criticized for well, their dish. Well, that was part of the problem, was that it turned out one of the contestants' wife was a woman. And she was a woman. Oh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, of LGBT chefs on Chopped. Well, he had to shield his eight-year-old daughter. How does he explain it to her? How can he explain to her? He could, well, he doesn't want to because he doesn't want to normalize it. She, you know, and by, it took about 40 minutes for him to just really uh, admit that this is not really a question about marriage is going to threaten marriage or whatever it is, just that he has a moral problem with uh with gay people and um what i didn't do and i i offer this as an apology to our listeners we didn't really do any research on cfam uh, the only reason why we had him on was because he was on uh twitter saying you know uh, yeah how could you do this to say this did about you need me? to research it to have well, to know what i didn't realize we didn't realize no, it was this bad no i didn't realize it was this bad i didn't realize that he had flown to moscow uh-huh to praise the Russian anti-gay laws there. Somebody's a closeted. Yeah, you know, if you're that against it, where there's smoke, there's fire. But by the way, anybody who is going to have a problem with chopped and bringing in the old chestnut of how do I explain this to my child, there's do the research. That's fine. But you know that there is so much more going on. I believe that. that he is. There's a white-knuckled quality to this. And I think, you know, by his own argument, it is perfectly, uh, it is to be expected by the nature of his argument that there will be men out there uh -huh. who are denying, uh, denying their feelings, mm -hmm. uh, and le leading, uh, 
uh, by all outward from what from what we can tell would be a heterosexual life he feels it's a choice uh he may have those feelings or may not i don't know well he's definitely got some feelings besides being uh, uh terribly anti-intellectual in this area and panicked and and uh petty you know very I petty that's probably petty. his personality type and also it probably has to see with the neanderthal uh, genetics. Some have more than others. <laughs> you know, there was intermingling uh, sexual encounters uh, between Neander Neanderthals. Yeah. And I guess hom hominids are uh, are more advanced. I could be wrong about that. But as we were evolving, some were a bit more behind. I don't know what the politically correct word is for a a <laughs> people who get two dollars a regressive uh, yeah we, a Neanderthal that would get two. Two dollars an hour. Right, let's say. Let's put it that way. He's worth what he's worth. Right. Just of spend. course. But uh, there, I have read about this before. That there is evidence to support that that in nature some things hang on a little bit longer than others, and in some pockets of the world there were Neanderthals that weren't as advanced as other pockets of the world, and there was some intermingling between more advanced and less advanced yes and, and also, that is that's but lives on different on, that lives on uh, we were on people. different evolutionary roads at yes. that point we had split off from the neanderthals they were really more like our cousins i guess you could say well i feel like some people i'm being sincere when i say this i am not joking around i believe that there is in the genetic coding of some a more regressive tendency you know nature and nurture is both they, they are neurologically wired a certain way but anybody who is is like the Koch brothers or Michelle Bachman or, you know, anywhere in the world, uh, people who, who stand against inclusiveness or e social evolution or fairness or tolerance, any of these things, and, and then make a career of it. Or d down to the neighborhood being, bully. You're saying you know? they're being run... Uh, it's predetermined that, that their there DNA is, yes. uh, is forcing them to be regressive. I feel like there's they want to go back to yes. like, the, the cave method. Now, I believe that there is some, some case to be made for some ne neurological wiring issues in a person who is so uh, seemingly a sociopath. They aren't, maybe, but they se seem to be. Uh, now, like the Koch brothers. Now, they probably are intelligent. They're not emotionally intelligent, but they probably are bright guys. And I don't believe for a second they are down with this social nonsense. They're willing to use course, it. They'll absolutely. ride that train. Absolutely. But I, ha I have fact, a feeling the Koch on, brothers... on record as saying he supports marriage equality. Yeah, yeah I, I'm care. sure. Yeah. It, it, just much like Dick Cheney. Totally. As long as the money's green... That's that. That's the number one issue, right? And the thing is, is they'll they're willing to play that card of intolerance, uh, to use those those people, uh, because it suits them. But that so that their their issue is different. Their cruelty. So whatever's wrong with them, I don't know that it's more Neanderthal. Then there's some people that are so anti-intellect. Like Michelle Bachman. Uh, just as one example, there's plenty of others, and even people outside of politics. Just in your neighbor, the neighborhood bully, who is is. Oh, you you're talking about Adam Carolla. Uh, uh, for uh, <laughs> a type, as a type, as a type. Right. But I'm saying in anyone's hometown or anything like that, there is a strain of Neanderthal genetics in them that I think is stronger. Oh, you're definitely talking about Adam people. Carolla. Are you taking issue? Uh, did he say something about you? Because Greg Barrett was very upset recently about something Adam Carolla said. I was just oh no, no. Him. I just Adam Carolla is just one of those guys who, to me, uh, sort of epitomizes what you're talking about. He's just sort of like casually um, uh, moronic about politics, but doesn't the idea that he doesn't know anything of what he's talking about 
does in no way make him hesitate to talk uh, about those things. But he has no access to quote unquote seats of power, uh, and I doubt that he would well, push it. That well, he's he got talks a, to he's got a platform where he yes, where he, he talks, talks to, to people that, that people. are like minded. I actually have not heard his podcast or whatever you're talking about. I I'm assuming that that he just by judging from some of the humor that I have seen. Uh, I'm not even seen. talking about his humor. I mean, occasionally he'll just sort of wade into sort of libertarian arguments. Oh, okay. Uh, those type of like um, sort of casual, you know, common sense. He's, it's all about common sense. Right. There. Well, that's just an e easier way to live for him. It's just easier way to live. Um, there are a, a, a number of, of, what would, of what male would comics who have that. Uh, I guess Adam Kroll said a very, just a very nasty, un, unkind thing about him in general, you know, oh. in general. Okay. And so I thought maybe you were... No, no. I don't. You know, I don't take no, the worst part of personal Adam, attacks. The worst part of Adam Carolla. Know, that's not. That, is that is that he's not knowledgeable enough about anything, so he never wants to engage in any debate. He just says right. what he says, and then he just. But that's the that's nature of lots of. That's the nature of a up, lot of those people. When they, I bring him up, I'm just goading. He's not funny. When I bring him up, I'm just goading him. That's it. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't even uh, have a specific complaint, but I'm just goading him. But I doubt he would go to the mat. Oh, to, no, to, to harass people. I no. doubt he would move towards His whole family could be forced to, to sit people. down and see me goading him, and he still wouldn't do it because he knows that he couldn't justify or explain any of his political positions, mm -hmm. so he would never engage. So there's nothing I could do to goad him enough. But... Uh, you know, but, well, you I'm certainly also, did try right there. <laughs> what, what, I'm, what I'm also saying is he probably wouldn't go into society to stand in the way of somebody. You know what I mean? Like he's not going to block a, a, a gay marriage or any, or, or, or I, I doubt I don't he know would, if he would I block a gay he marriage, would. but he goes on, he goes on Fox occasionally. I don't, I don't picture him getting active himself, but I could yeah. certainly picture him throwing money to an organization that would do it for him. Oh, I actually mm, doubt he would want to part that. with his money. Really? I don't yeah. think, yeah, I don't no. think he would part no, with his money. There's too many, towards there's too many built-in like kegerators to buy. No, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like he actually wouldn't throw throw money behind it either. Uh, I am not denying or invalidating what you guys are saying, I, and I am sure he says conveniently unkind things that that are right but he's pretend not it's just platform. casual it's just casual but i you know that you know for me uh that's just i, I find that well he may have more neanderthal genetics either way I, somebody i'm sure will tell him I mean, that some you know that he that, that he's being called out or something whatever you know the way uh the nonsense goes through the web so maybe you will get your wish that oh one can only hope What I took home from Adolf Reed's uh, piece in Harper's, The Long Slow Surrender of American Liberals, to boil it down to a couple of sentences, and, and, and it's not all that inconsistent with stuff that I've been saying for years, but he says it you know, really well. And I'm not a trip, although this is my take of his take. It's not necessarily his take. He, he would probably disagree were he on this program right now um, and try to put a lot more nuance on it. But anyhow, my take of it is, that on the right, there is this clear-eyed utopian vision. And it runs something like this. If only 
government got so small that the marketplace could genuinely operate and make its trillions of decisions every second as individual buyers and sellers get together and make decisions. If only the government completely got out of the marketplace, got out of the way, then this perfect marketplace would create a perfect utopia. And getting government out of the way is going to mean the government's not going to cost as much, and so it's going to reduce taxes, which are also a drag on that perfect marketplace. And so we need to reduce taxes dramatically, and we need to reduce regulation dramatically, and we need to just get government out of the way. And if we do that, the world will be wonderful. Now, that's the sales pitch on the right. And there's a lot of people who believe that. The libertarians, I mean, this is the core kernel of this utopian view of libertarians. It's the core kernel of the utopian view that's pitched in Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, where the rich people all went on strike because they got sick and tired of the government telling them what to do and of the labor unions hassling them. And when the rich people went on strike, society turned into chaos and the country fell apart. And the rich people, led by John Galt, started this, you know, their own little libertarian experiment in this other place. Now, the fact of the matter is that this has never been successfully tried anywhere in the world, and every time it has been tried, what has what you've ended up with is monopoly and rule by the super-rich and basically despotism. It's basically you, you end up with uh, uh, revisiting feudalism, kingdoms. But still, there is a clear-eyed utopian vision on the right that they can sell to people. And that then and and you know folks like the Koch brothers and other billionaires who who fund this vision love it because the more government gets out of the way, the more they can dominate marketplaces. So what's the clear-eyed utopian vision on the left? During the time of FDR, it was government can be a force for good. We together as society are government. Government should balance the excesses and the thefts that come along with capitalism. And it should do so by some fundamental and simple principles. You have the right to free speech. You have the right to a government that's not corrupt. You have the right to a job. You have the right to an education, including a college education. The way the, the, the post-FDR folks did this was with the GI Bill, which doubled the number of college graduates in the United States. So basically, you have these fundamental rights. Hey, Alan, you have these fundamental rights, and along with these rights will come a utopian world, right? This was a utopian vision, too. Everything will work out just fine. If we can, you know, I, it might not work out as well for the billionaires, but they'll be, they'll be fine. They might just be worth hundreds of millions. But, hey, you know, you can get by on 100 million or 500 million or, a, you know, 900 million. And, yeah, you know, Roosevelt said they hate me and I welcome their hatred. But, you know, it was all about saying, you know, we're going to create this base. And he set about doing that in 1933, creating the WPA and the CCC and, and all these other agencies where he was basically, these agencies were, you know, now modern 
libertarian conservatives would say, oh, my God, that was big government run amok. FDR would say, this is we, the people, collectively saying we all have a right to a job, and when uh, General Motors isn't providing the job, when ExxonMobil isn't providing the job, when Walmart's not providing the job, government will. And there's no shortage of things that we all agree need to be done that are not being done by capitalism. Capitalism wasn't building an interstate highway system. Capitalism wasn't building uh, railroads. Those were paid, you know, the railroad lines, the original beds. Uh, Abe Lincoln gave away what in today's dollars would be tens of billions, maybe even hundreds of billions of dollars to the big railroads in terms of land, outright grants. Same thing with the Internet. Shane was remarking to me this morning that, you know, this guy from Verizon, he just said, you know, uh, the CEO of Verizon, and this has gone viral today, uh, people who use the Internet more should pay more. That kind of sounds kind of logical, right? Except that we built the Internet. Those backbone structures, those, those big national backbone structures, those were public-private partnerships. The government paid a good chunk of that, and large parts of it that weren't paid for the, by the government were, that were paid for by private industry were paid for using property, you know, rights of way taken by use of the Fifth Amendment of eminent domain taken from people and now Verizon owns it or Cogent or Comcast and they're saying we own this but you didn't build it As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. So who won CPAC? You know, they do a straw poll at the end of it. Uh, and we heard from all the different speakers, the usual uh, suspects, Rick Santorum, Sarah Palin, Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, uh, etc. And the winner is Rand Paul. But not by a little, by a lot. He crushed the competition. 31%. Coming in second is Ted Cruz at only 11%. And the brackets show you how much they've moved up in the last year, or in some cases moved down. And then this is an embarrassment for everybody. Dr. Ben Carson, who uh, comes in at third at 9%. His main distinction is that uh, he is black and hates President Obama. That's why he came in third at CPAC. Congratulations. Uh, and then uh, Chris Christie is a miserable fourth. But the only thing more miserable is Rick Santorum, who he, th in his mind, thinks is the front runner because he kind of came in second in 2012 is at fifth place and dropping at 7% and losing uh, points from last year. And then the rest of the field is just fun. Marco Rubio, Paul Ryan. <laughs> Paul Ryan's at 3%. He was the VP nominee. 
3%. Rubio went down 17% because he dared to say we should do immigration reform. That would still be soul-crushing, by the way, but a little bit of immigration reform. Rick Perry's at 3%. He went up three points, meaning he was at zero last year. That's fun. Bobby Jindal, Condi Rice, Huckabee, and then Palin. Why are people talking about Bailey? She's at 2%. She's at 2% in a national poll. It's CPAC. That's a conservative conference. 2%. Okay. So, uh, obviously, there's a lot of love for Rand Paul at CPAC, as you can tell. Even cutouts of Rand Paul uh, get a lot of love. <laughs> Is there anything funnier than young Republican women? God bless them. God bless them, man. Back when I was in college and I was a young Republican... Hey, I would have been wanting to be in the middle of that picture. So, uh, Rand Paul, the big winner. And now, um, you have to understand a couple of things. This means that there are two things at play here. Number one, CPAC has got well-known love for the Paul family. Let's just keep it real. Okay, so it doesn't mean Rand Paul is going to win the nomination in 2016. Not only is it a long way away, but CPAC has not necessarily predicted that at all. In fact, let me show you the last five years here. You might sense a trend. Um, in 2010, it was Ron Paul that was the winner of the poll. Then 2011, Ron Paul. 2012, look at that, Mitt Romney. 2013, Rand Paul. 2014, Rand Paul. So I believe I sense a little bit of a trend there. Uh, but that goes to point number two, which is that CPAC is younger than your average conservative get-together. And I think that this trend towards libertarianism within the Republican Party, as it pertains to the young, is absolutely real. Both an unofficial informal survey by Huffington Post and uh, a more formal survey by CPAC also uh, conclude that a majority of the people at CPAC believe that marijuana should be legalized. Now these are conservatives. Again, it depends on what you want to call a Republican or a conservative these days, but there is a heavy libertarian trend within the Republican Party. Is it big enough to put Rand Paul in as at least the official nominee in 2016? There's no way of knowing that right now. But it's real. There's no question about that. And if you look at the answers as to why they thought marijuana should be legalized, it costs too much money to imprison all those people. We can get tax dollars. Those are not, you know, unnormal answers for a Republican on that side of the issue. But then things like one person said, because freedom. Now legalizing pot in some Republican circles, and apparently the majority of CPAC, has become freedom. That's a sea change. So... All of a sudden, here come the Libertarians! Politicians and pundits convened for the Conservative Political Action Conference to talk to the Republican base. Let's take a look at some of the worst rhetoric. During his speech, conservative activist Ralph Reed likened President Obama to George Wallace, the famously pro-segregation governor of Alabama. Fifty years ago, George Wallace stood in the schoolhouse door and said that African-American students couldn't come in. Today, the Obama administration stands in that same schoolhouse door and refuses to let those children leave. Representative Paul Ryan told a story shaming low-income families, implying that students receiving food from school lunch programs have parents who don't care about them. Finally, conservative commentator Michael Medved shouted this outburst during a panel discussion. Where? No prohibition. There has never been a state in this country that has ever banned gay marriage. That's a liberal lie.
Michelle Bachman spoke at CPAC, and Michelle Bachman explained that conservatism and the Tea Party are intellectual movements. So clearly, there would be six-year-olds who are saying to themselves, "I'm hungry, but I don't want the free school lunch because that's comfort, not dignity." That's if you believe Michelle Bachman. Michelle Bachman said that at its core, we are dealing—I <laughs> can't even say this with a straight face—we're dealing with an intellectual movement. Here's what she had to say. You see, our movement at its core is an intellectual movement. We are based on the greatest ideas that have ever been conceived in the mind of man, and I would put those magnificent ideas up against any other idea for freedom in the world, because the Constitution, limited government, free enterprise, strong families—these are the principles that have passed the test of time. She talks about the Constitution, limited government, strong families. She also added that just as America was over、uh, able to overcome other threats to to its survival, we will survive Barack Obama too. Now it's kind of confusing that Michelle Bachman is saying that at its core, conservatism and the Tea Party and this religious brand of conservatism that Michelle Bachman preaches is is a, a an intellectual movement. When just a few months ago, Rick Santorum said this about smart people: "We will never have the elite smart people on our side." Hmm, I'm confused. I guess what we can say is the following: If it is an intellectual movement, it's one that Michelle Bachman can fully understand and be the spokesperson and leader for. And that should tell you a lot about the specific intellect level required. Maybe that's the the fairest assessment we can make. Call it an intellectual movement that is at Michelle Bachman's intellect level.、Uh, I think that's fair. Yeah, in reality, it's the opposite of an intellectual movement.、Uh, I, I think if if Tea Partiers knew that the whole thing was just created and funded by the richest people in America to、uh, <laughs> you know capitalize on their emotions. Um, we'd have a different situation here. The other thing is when she talks about the principles of this intellectual movement, she talks about, for example, like the Constitution is a principle. The Constitution is not a principle; it's just a document. And just saying that the Constitution is a principle makes no sense at all. But I think that Michelle Bachman's not really worried about that. She's worried about the broader, overarching ideas of this intellectual movement called as called religious conservatism or the Tea Party. I wanted to call and comment on the latest episode on women's rights.、Uh, the last segment you played featured a speaker who argued against the word feminist for a variety of reasons, both comical and substantive. And I found myself chuckling along with him, but in the end, I felt disconnected to his overall point. I self-identify as a feminist, and I find no issue with the word whatsoever. If I remember correctly, you hosted a conversation on the definition of the word feminist a year or so ago. And I remember learning about it and coming to terms with my own self-identification as a feminist and what that meant to me. So I was thinking, in this semester at school, I'm taking a class called the History of the English Language. So when the commentator mentioned the word, the suffix "if," it made me curious. So I just Googled it and looked it up. And the, the first and primary use of that suffix denotes an adherent to a system of beliefs and principles expressed by a noun ending in "-ism". In this case, it would be feminism, feminist. 
The second usage is the one the speaker was talking about. It denotes a person who subscribes to a prejudice or practices discrimination. And in our case, this word is sexist. Now, sexist seems to me to be a perfectly solid, powerful, succinct word that can be used to describe people and systems that practice discrimination based on someone's sex. Although I was amused by the, the new word genderist, I believe that sexist does the job quite well. This term, like racist, slaps people pretty hard. No one wants to be a sexist, which makes the word's employment as a label for actions or systems even more potent. You know, furthermore, I don't think the feminist is a bad word, which seemed to be, maybe not his primary argument, but kind of an underlying argument of the speaker. This is a word that does not need to be changed. This is, this is a fight, and it's a good fight. No matter how many people oppose, who have opposing beliefs frame that word feminist, I will not be ashamed to be a feminist, or, or a progressive, or a liberal, or a secularist, or, or any other thing that they want to say is bad. Owning my own labels, like you've been talking about with the, the trans issues lately, is an important piece to my overall personal autonomy and, and how I want to describe myself. The word feminist is not all not all encompassing, and there are many branches of the movement with sometimes different goals, but one thing that could fracture the spirit of the movement would be the dissolution of that term, that label, feminist. So thanks for the show, Jay. Keep it up. Stay awesome. I learned after posting the previous episode that actually a lot of people have a variety of problems with that Joss Whedon speech, but just to respond to the specific issue of getting rid of the term feminism, my interpretation of his speech is that that is not what he was suggesting, and if I had interpreted it that way, I wouldn't have played it. That wouldn't have made sense to me, but I definitely understand how some people have interpreted it that way, and unfortunately, I did some research, I tried to find, like, his response to the backlash to the speech, and I really couldn't find anything. So if you have any insights on that, I would love to hear them. Hey Jay, this is Chrissy from Kansas. And I want to apologize first and foremost if I sound upset, and that's because I am. So here's the thing about queer theory. It isn't about getting to regard themselves however anybody likes, like Matt in Michigan said. In a sense, it is doing what you feel and being who you feel you are, but that's a gross oversimplification. Queer theory takes a feminist idea that gender is a social construct and includes sexuality and gender expression as something created to feed the capitalist, patriarchal white machine of what is good and normal for a person to be. Queer theory isn't about identity. In queer theory, there is no such thing as identity because it's all a construct. What there is is performance and performativity. So queer identity within the context of queer theory means nothing. If Matt performs his gender and his sexuality is normative, and his gender and sexuality are perceived as normative by a cultural audience, then that matters much more than what he decides to call himself. So with the understanding that within the context of queer theory, a queer identity means nothing, we have to consider what a queer identity means outside of that context. And in that, I feel quite comfortable in saying that as a queer woman, I am most certainly uncomfortable with Matt describing himself as queer. If we consider that what he's actually said about his gender expression and the perception of his gender... I really uh, am more comfortable defining myself as queer than as straight. Even though I've, you know, I've never kissed a guy, I've never had sex with a guy, um, I'm, by most definitions, a pretty conventional straight white dude. But I'm more comfortable with the label queer than I am with the label straight because of um, the political implications uh, of that uh, tradition. And what he's actually said about his sexual practices and sexuality, his only real justification of his quote-unquote queerness is that he doesn't feel like he 
likes the political imp- implications of straight slash cis like traditions. He doesn't feel like he fits into a box of typical straightness or typical cisgender. But he has said and expressed nothing that actually shows any sense of identity otherwise. Just because a person can see, acknowledge, and then feels uncomfortable by their privileged identities doesn't mean that they get to appropriate another person's identity, and that's what this is, appropriation. Hearing a person who, for all intents and purposes, expresses his gender as normative and expresses his sexuality as normative, claiming a queer identity, makes me uncomfortable. Call it hubris, call it gatekeeping, but if the context of the conversation that we're having says that identities have meaning, then queer means something. And if we're having this conversation under the context of queer theory, then it's performance and perception that have meaning. And under that auspice, Matt is still normative. Maybe it's just that he doesn't express his queerness well enough and that I'm not understanding it, but if your only real reason for identifying as queer is a desire not to be identified as normative, that doesn't cut it for me. And there would be more power and more meaning in his owning his straight male cisness and standing in solidarity with queerness instead of trying to own a label that he's claimed under the auspice of a theory that stabilizes identity. That's it. Thanks. As I tried to make clear in the previous episode in this whole discussion of identity politics, I was certainly not trying to play identity politics gatekeeper myself. I was trying to play sort of identity politics messenger just to inform that, you know, there are these other opinions out there. So I really appreciate Chrissy sort of jumping in and filling that gap. You know, hers is the sort of opinion that I knew was there but had not actually been expressed on the show yet. Hey, Jay, it's uh, Jacob in Indianapolis again. Um, I was hesitant to call in, but it almost seemed like you were directly asking me a question, so I wanted to answer. I initially called in on advice from someone because I have trouble with this, and I do want to be politically correct, I guess, is the best thing that comes to mind, but I have some issues, and I was hoping you know, we could you know, hash them out. I, I'm not trying to be antagonistic to your audience or to you personally. So I deeply apologize if I contributed to your bad day. I wanted to re- reply to a, a few things. I wanted to reply to the caller, uh, Tanya or Tanya. I forget the exact pronunciation. So I apologize if I was pronouncing that wrong. I think that she had some very great insight. Um, you know what, I'll be 100% honest, I have never thought of what she had said, and maybe it's plausible. If it is, it's purely on a subconscious uh, basis, but I think that uh, she had a lot to say there that was really good that I plan on reflecting on. As far as your question about is it good enough for me just to enjoy you know, white male privilege, obviously I've probably been the uh, recipient uh, of that. I, I can't deny that. I do not feel a conscious threat uh, to my privilege. And moreover, I'm with you. I want to get rid of, you know, white privilege. And if you'll recall from my first uh, voicemail, I actually said I do acknowledge, you know, a cis uh, privilege. You know, I'm trying to use the word cis. I, I feel like I don't like it. But, you know, maybe I'll try and use it and see if it can grow on me. You gave me a lot to think about there. Let me give you a little background on myself that I think might put my view in perspective. 
I'm a very left-brained person. My personality type is uh, ESTJ. I work as a database analyst, so my job is to literally put people in boxes. And I know some of your uh, listeners don't like boxes. They say that the boxes they have don't comfortably fit them. But in general, boxes work, and companies pay money because boxes work. And so I'm always trying to make sense of my role by putting things in boxes. And sometimes people don't like boxes, and they may feel it's uncomfortable, but it works. And for me to change the box, I have to have a good reason to change the box. And where I probably grind against you and your listeners, I just don't think someone's feelings are a valid enough reason to change the box, okay? So I looked up a, like, personal pronouns are one of my biggest gripes. I'm looking them up, and why do we need pronouns? And I apologize for mispronouncing these, like, Zay, C-A, here, Co, A. Why do we need this? Why does he, she break down? Other than outside of boys' locker rooms, I mean, pronouns aren't really used to keep people down like the way the N-word is. So I don't understand why we need these new words and these new genders. Facebook has 50 new genders. Why does it need 50 genders other than someone's feeling they're hurt because they just say that they don't identify with male or female? And maybe in my mind, I can't disassociate between gender and sex, but I really just need a good reason to come up with these. And then especially when genders refer to sexual orientation, sort of like gender queer, and maybe if you could have an episode on why we need these words, what's so inefficient about the words that we did have, why do we need new words, maybe I could, you know, get on board with this. I apologize in advance for upsetting you and listeners. It really isn't my goal. I'm really just trying to wrap my head around the issue, and I want to be on board and I do believe in inequality for all. I want to reduce, you know, white male privilege. I'm just needing some help getting there. Again, still enjoying the show. Wickedly apologize for contributing to your bad day. I hope you're having a good one. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So now just to finish up uh, in response to Jacob, there are a lot of things I could respond to. I'll just focus on a couple, but first, I'm, I'm glad to hear it sounds like we're making progress. So this long, drawn-out conversation has not been for naught. Um, but first of all, I think we can actually look at sort of the the database of humanity and put people into boxes in a way that will sort of resonate for, for a person like Jacob and make some progress with this. So Jacob described how it's not just about the language, but it's about actually feeling like he has to recategorize himself and move his name from the box labeled, you know, man to the box labeled cisgender man. And... I think that I can clarify by explaining that those are not boxes in two totally separate columns. Both transgender and cisgender are subcategories of the larger column of gender. So man is the parent category, while both cis man and trans man are subcategories. The same goes for woman, cis woman, and trans woman. 
Now, cis and trans are antonyms, so you can't be both cis and trans, and that would be a dramatic change in identity to move from one to the other. But by looking at it as a hierarchical structure, it's easy to see how one can be both a man, as the parent category, and a cis man, as the subcategory. So using that label is just adding specificity rather than actually changing our label in any truly substantive way. So, you know, Jacob already fits into the cisgender box. He just didn't realize it, I think. So that might actually sort of clarify things a little bit. Um, and, and then just a quick reminder about, you know, he, he touched on this the difference between sex and gender, there is a difference and it causes a lot of confusion. Sex is between the legs, gender is between the ears. That's the you know quick and easy way to remember that they are separate, they are very often linked in people, but what we are finding is that they actually are separate and so people experience those things separately and that's, that's what this whole discussion is sort of acknowledging, frankly. But even if you have trouble separating the two, you, you cannot wrap your mind around those two things being separate. Let me tell you about something called intersex. So this comes from the Intersex Society of North America on their FAQ page. What is intersex? Just the first paragraph reads, intersex is a general term used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with a reproductive or sexual anatomy that does not seem to fit the typical definitions of female or male. For example, a person might be born appearing to be female on the outside, but having mostly male typical anatomy on the inside. Or a person may be born with genitals that seem to be in between the usual male and female types. For example, a girl may be born with a noticeably large clitoris, or lacking a vaginal opening, or or a boy may be born with a notably small penis or a scrotum that is divided so that it has formed more like a labia. Or a person may be born with mosaic genetics so that some of her cells are double X chromosomes while some of them have XY. So that, and that's just the first paragraph. So if you cannot wrap your mind around it and you think, no, you know, gender and sex are the same and it's a binary system because you can only be man or woman biologically and it doesn't matter what's going on in your head or, okay, maybe, maybe gender is on a spectrum because it's in your head, but biology is definitely not on a spectrum because you're definitely either a man or a woman biologically, you're still wrong about that because it turns out biological sex is also on a spectrum. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. This stuff is confusing, and there's a lot to learn. Uh, there's no, no shame in ignorance. There's just shame in ignorance coupled with confidence in yourself. And honestly, I don't think Jacob falls into that category. Other people definitely, definitely do. Uh, so if you are ignorant of something, I, I suggest reading up on it more uh, and, and educating yourself because there's a lot to be educated on. For, you know, as, as people, we are not experts at very many things. <laughs> we we live relatively small lives compared to all of the information that the universe holds for us to potentially, uh, you know, become experts in. So you, you know, I, I I hold no uh, anger or ill will towards Jacob or any, anyone like that. I I'm really happy that he's sort of making progress and working to wrap his mind around. And I I just hope that there are more people like him 
who are willing to make progress rather than digging in their heels. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're doing Can't see past